If you've listened to an episode of this podcast before, then you're probably aware that I'm an addict in recovery. And if you're not, hi, my name is Sam Lamont, and I'm an ex-meth head. And I have a ton of speculations of how I actually got there, but here's the facts. From 12 to 22, I was pretty much regularly using mood-altering substances to change my state of being. To me, looking back on it, it felt like self-medicating, but what's ultimately the end result is that at 22, I had no normal friends left. My mother didn't want to be in my life anymore. I was facing a ridiculously contentious custody battle that I was sure to lose unless something changed, and I was also facing pretty severe legal consequences for a fight that had gone wrong. So, I've been really lucky. I've had eight years clean and sober and going, and I am really, really grateful to be a part of the recovery community. However, when you have addicts in your life, active addicts, I should say, it's really painful. It's a great exercise of being completely out of control because you cannot make decisions for this person. If you have an addict in your life, or if you're in recovery and close to addicts who are still going out and using, it's basically like being close enough to the fire that if they reach out, you can pull them out of it, but also close enough that if they fall in and die, you have to see it. And a few days prior to this recording, a really good friend of mine, Tyler, passed away. Tyler and I had been joined at the hip for about a year at some point during my recovery, and he kept relapsing, and it became harder and harder to have him in my life. And we eventually just became people who sporadically texted every once in a while, and someone he would contact and let know that he was sober when he put a string of time together. But he died. And that's not uncommon. That's pretty much what I would say addicts do if they don't get treated. They die. Or they go to prison, or they go to an institution. But it doesn't end well if you have the kind of addiction that I have. Now, today's guest isn't an addict himself. He's the father of a meth head, just like yours truly. And it's a conversation that I've actually avoided for a while because I just wasn't ready to have it. It's easy enough to talk about my own addiction, but it's hard to face the reality of the damage that my addiction caused to everyone around me. And it's something that I still have to process and deal with. I permanently altered relationships that I really care about. For instance, my mother's and I relationship will never be the way it would have been if I had never become a meth head. That is for sure. Relationships with some of my best friends have just changed. I'm sober and they love me and I love them, but there's something that happens when you cause that severe of damage and healing takes a lot of time. So this conversation is the perspective of a father of an addict and an addict talking about addiction and what it means to seek help and get recovery and come together and try to fight this thing with everything you have as a unit. So without further ado, here is my conversation with David Sheff, who's written several great books, but notably Beautiful Boy, which is about his journey of trying to save his son from addiction. I've called this episode Everything. David, thanks for having me in your home. Yeah, well, Sam, it's awesome to see you. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. It's really a pleasure to have you on. Since my mom and you know each other, she suggested you a lot earlier. And this has been a conversation I've been avoiding because it's really close to home. Both you and my mom had sons who were meth addicts. Yeah. And so it's interesting to have someone else. You know, 
it's almost like you can treat your parents a certain way, but then you would never treat your friend's parents that way. Yeah. So it's in inter- <laughs> that same principle, whatever that is, is at play here where it's like I can have a conversation with my mom about it in a certain way where it's kind of like, God, well, that's just what happened, mom. Jeez. Uh, but it's different to sit across from you. So I like to start every podcast this way, and this can be as big or as small of a question as you like. But David, who are you? Okay. You just wanted to start like with something like really easy and mm-hmm. kind of trivial. And, um, oh, God. I guess I'm a person who struggles through, you know, and has struggled through my whole life just trying to not just get by. That's part of it, just get by, but also to try to, you know, get better, do better, you know, be better. And realizing, you know, how how fallible I am, you know, how hard that is and maybe impossible at some point to sort of be what I, you know, what I'd like to be. But uh, that's really what it's, what it is. I think it's, um, I think it's maybe what we all try to do is just to, you know, figure it out and and, uh, go forward and make fewer mistakes, you know, as as we get older, as I, you know, I I try and sometimes I do okay and sometimes I fail miserably. Yeah. So you're the author of Beautiful Boy. And so to many people, you are David Sheff, the father of Nick Sheff, the meth head who wrote the story. But obviously, you're a complete person that is so much more than that. And so one of the things I like to gauge, especially because at some point, a bio has to be created for you for this mm-hmm. program. I love to know how you identify. So, it, you know, sometimes you'll have somebody who's a comedian and they identify as an author. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, well, inter- you know, that's like the top. And so I'd love if you could just tell us like a brief bit of uh, who you are on the surface level in terms of just how you identify as a being in this world. You know, I guess if, you know, to be ta- to be honest, and maybe some people would say this was not the first thing that would come to my mind when you ask that question. I think I I identify maybe most as a, as a parent, as a father. Maybe, you know, maybe not all for good reasons, but you know, I think it's really what is what I care about the most, um, what I've devoted myself to the most. Maybe part of the reason for that, I think I always have, but part of the reason for that is when a parent almost loses their child, that becomes, you know, the focus in a much more intense way when, you know, when there were 10 years when I thought Nick was, my son Nick was going to die. And so that became my preoccupation. So, you know, that's where it is. And beyond that, I guess it's, um, exploring you know things that c- come across my path that are interesting to me and and that I end up caring about and of course the reason I've been focusing so much on addiction related issues for the last 10 years is because of what we went through in our family and the recognition that you know this is something that is out there everywhere and we don't talk about it happening a little bit more now and and sort of finding myself in a position where I felt that I wanted to and also felt obligated to um, try to you know educate about this and try to figure out what's going on why you know what what is addiction why is it consuming you know just devastating our families and our kids our communities um so i guess that's what i identify with now that in terms of work it's trying to figure that out and to try to be you know to try to help in some small way you know and the other thing is sort of the broader vision of my job has just always been you know since college i've been a writer and a journalist and trying to figure out you know what is interesting to what stories are interesting to tell. And so that's the other piece of it. I guess it is really about telling stories. And I've done that, whether it's 
you know, recently related to addiction and mental illness. Uh, but before that, it was with whatever politics, art, you know, music, business. I mean, that's part of it as well. For the majority of my research, I, I obviously just read Beautiful Boy and I, I'll watch the movie, which congratulations on um, it's weird, huh? <laughs> it being adapted into a movie that wasn't terrible. Um, my, my mom always says, never have anything adapted to a movie. Yeah. She's traumatized because of a few friends' experiences. Yeah. Well, she's prob I probably should have listened to her. Not because it's um, these guys you know, did a, a good job, but it was hard to watch our own you know when i as hard as it was to write beautiful boy and and you know nick my he wrote his own memoir tweak but we had control over those stories it's sort of like i could i was really careful with every word of the book because i wanted to make sure that nobody was hurt you know people had been hurt so badly throughout the experience that i was really careful and i was in control uh, but here it was giving the control to somebody else and that was terrifying but it's uh, so it was weird i mean to have uh, your life up on a big screen. I could only barely sit through it once. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, it was you know, just devastating to watch. Uh, kind of seeing, you know, I knew everything pretty much that had happened because of not just reading Nick's books, but just our, you know, our conversations over the years. I mean, I pretty much knew it all, but seeing it was different. And even though there was a lot of details that were invented for, you know, storytelling purposes, I mean, I never in the middle of the night, the guy, the dad, you know, goes off and, you know, wants to know what his kid is experiencing so he goes out to some you know alleyway and he scores math and he does it in the middle of the night you know i never did that you never did but math that's so i just... did math when i was at, I, I tried it when I was that's so college, disappointing but not then i mean because to me it was like I, I even told the director when i read the script that part of the script i said you know i don't care in terms of i don't care if it makes me look good or bad or you know whatever just that crazy that i would do that but the truth is, I said, if you, you know, in terms of the emotional reality is that I don't think a parent, I never would have, and I don't think a parent in that situation would ever do that because the whole thing for me wasn't about values or morals. It was about trying to be in control. And so I wasn't going to go out and start, you know, doing meth in the middle of the night and do what Steve Carell did, which he sort of in his office spinning chairs around and everything like that. It just seemed silly. But for people who aren't familiar with your story, could you give us a, a brief rundown of, of what happened? of kind of, you know, I guess the typical 12-step approach, like what it was like, yeah. what happened portion of it. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, as you know, to, con you know, to, to, um, communicate the, the reality, the truth of a life that is so complicated over so many years, but the, the sort of the basic story is one that actually a lot of people are familiar with. Unfortunately, a lot of families are, you know, which I had this, my son, my first son, I was, um, you know, I was this proud dad and he was my beautiful boy. I mean, still is, but he's, that's the way I thought of him. And, and growing up, raising him, there was never, you know, I wasn't naive about drugs. I've done them a lot. Uh, and I have a friend, you know, we've talked about it, my friend my, who was my college roommate who ended up overdosing and dying. So I was aware, I wasn't, you know, oblivious or naive like my parents were when I was growing up. But still, the idea that anything like uh, addiction could happen to my child was inconceivable. And it did, you know, he was 11 years old when I found that he was smoking pot at first. And um, I talked to his teacher in the, at the school and the counselor, and they basically told me, you know, not to worry, Nick was fine, he was a great kid. I wish that's not what they told me. I wish they would have told me that, you know, let's figure out what's going on in the life of an 11 year old kid who's getting high. Because what ended up happening, of course, they said Nick was gonna just be fine, don't worry about it, and and, and there was, um, and he wasn't fine, you know, his. His addiction began very soon, right, really right at the beginning, the way he talks about it when he started first smoking pot and drinking. And he realized that he, whatever substance it was, it was not, his reaction was not the same as his friends. Uh, he just 
even when like the first time he got really drunk, it made him so sick. Even in the middle of that sickness, he couldn't wait to do it again. So, you know, in retrospect, he knew that there was something. And that, look, at the time, he didn't know because he was just experiencing it. But looking back, so you, you relate, yeah. And, you know, all the things that were inconceivable uh, happened that, you know, it's, again, other parents, I hear about it all the time. You know, it's, um, you know, my son, who was this, like, lovely, kind, funny, you know, smart, moral person, was doing things that were... Um, I just couldn't, you know, I was like baffling is a nice way to say it. it was horrifying, you know, um, but he broke into our house. He broke into friends' houses. He was arrested. He was in fights. He did things that was, it was like, who is this kid? You know? And, and finally I was in denial for a long time, just excusing away stuff that in retrospect, you know, was appalling, but I, and I shouldn't have ignored, I should have, you know, jumped on it right away, but I was in denial until I realize you know that nick was going to kill himself if uh, we didn't figure out what was going on and only then did i learn that you know he wasn't addicted uh and i also learned how much we don't know about addiction and how it is so hard for us to deal with when somebody when we ourselves or somebody we love becomes addicted because you know we we live in a culture that just has gotten it all wrong for for ever really and and so I then, you know, spent 10 years trying to figure it out, figure out what to do um, to save his life. And, you know, at a certain point when he was in recovery for a while, um, it wasn't the last time he relapsed, but he was in recovery for about a year and a half. And as a journalist, I thought that it was a story that needed to be told, you know, don't be like I was, you know, yes, this can happen to you. You know, it can happen to your family, it can happen to anybody and don't ignore it, you know, don't deny it, just um you know, keep your eyes open, and, and if you see stuff going on, figure it out what's going on. Uh, so I, I wrote about it, and that was sort of my intention at that point was to write this article for the New York Times and then move on with my life. But <laughs> that's not what happened. You know, two, yeah. two things happened. One of them is I realized, you know, that uh, this fantasy that I had that the addiction can be treated like in rehab one time or two times or something like that. It's not the way it works usually for most people. So Nick continue to relapse after that. And, and I realized that, you know, the journey was nowhere near over. But the other thing was, is that when that article came out, it's when I realized, you know, sort of the, the ubiquity of, of what we're dealing with, how many people are dealing with addiction, mental illness, all the related issues, and that nobody was talking about it or so few people were talking about it. So that really shifted everything for me. And I started connecting with families who had been experiencing what we'd experienced and, um, realized that there was a story that needed to be told. And, and so I continued. And I, I adapted the article into Beautiful Boy, the book. That led me to want to understand more about, you know, the sort of the science of addiction and the political issues around addiction. And so I went forward and I wrote another book um, about that, Clean. Then uh, Nick and I ended up, you know, he wrote his own memoirs. And so the two of us together were talking a lot to people about this and realized that, um, you know, so many kids just don't understand what's going on. They just never get any real information. So he and I wrote a book for kids. And so it sort of had become my life. Uh, he did relapse a few more times. You know, it doesn't get easier. It gets How worse. Many? It gets scarier. Well, after, I mean, overall, he's probably, he probably relapsed 10 or 12 times over okay. the course of 10 years. But even since he'd been sober that time for a year and a half, he wrote a memoir. I wrote mine. Um, since then he relapsed a couple more times, maybe two or three more, t maybe okay. three more times. Um, 
one thing that had happened, you know, people always say, you know, that rehab and recovery, you know, is a failure if somebody relapses. And what, um, what I learned is that, uh, you know, it can be uh, the worst tragedy in the world because somebody could die. But short of that, you know, it's a process and it's a, it's a trajectory. And so when Nick relapsed after that long period of recovery, things had shifted in, uh, in one way, which is that whereas in the past, I was the one from the outside recognizing that we were in trouble and we had to do something. At that point, he knew that he was. And so he's the one who made, you know, at one point he called me up and he said, I can't believe what I did last night. I was at my mom's house and she was having like a party. And so I was freaked. I was stressed out. I went to the bathroom. I opened the, you know, the cabinet, medicine cabinet. There's a bottle of Vicodin. I said, I'll just take a half of Vicodin just to sort of, you know, um, even me out so I could deal with this party. And then of course he said, I took a half. And then 20 minutes later, I went back and I took the other half and then the other half and the other half. And so, but he called the next day and said, I can't believe I did that. And he got, um, he got himself back into, into treatment. So there was definitely, um, progress in that way. You know, and they talk about progress, not perfection. And, um, they learned that, uh, that's really what it's about for a lot of people. Yeah. So, yeah, I have a ton of, I'm sure really radical views on recovery because I'm in it. I just lost a friend last week. Oh man. Excuse so me. Early this week. Um, and he was somebody who I was glued to, we, me and him were glued to the hip, uh, for a year straight and he relapsed and it was heartbreaking to me because it was almost like, can I trust you? Like you didn't call me or let me know, you know, and also the reality that addicts die is so real when you're in the rooms, when you're in the community of recovery. So for him to start going in and out relapsing for me, it was just like, you know, it was almost like, don't get too close. Yeah. Cause this person's going to break your heart. And eventually he did, you know, ultimately, uh, break a lot of people's hearts. But, you know, when we talk about recovery, when we talk about the system to only call a lifetime of sobriety success is unrealistic and it's not fair. You know, when people, a lot of people, since I talk about this publicly on the show, they'll reach out to me. Uh, A lot of them submitted questions that I'm either going to try and work into the conversation or just at the end of it, just ask the ones that weren't covered. And they're often the same. My brother is addicted to meth. He's terrorizing the family. Sometimes people don't want the family to help them. Other times they're desperate for help. And what I normally say is I say, remember the sweet brother he used to be, because that is also who he is. Mm -hmm. And that might be all you get. Yeah. Because this isn't fairy tale. Yeah. He may die, but just because somebody spent the last 20 years in a possessed terror Mm -hmm. doesn't take away the 10 years of amazingness that they got to experience. And just because somebody, you know, my friend only got three years of sobriety, he loved that sobriety. That was what a gift that he got to experience that. And he ended up dying. Yeah. But yeah, well, first I'm so sorry. It's, it's just no matter how many times it, it happens around us and how close it is and how it's just, there's no way ever to make it okay. Uh, and what you said, I think is exactly right. The one thing I guess that I heard when, what you said and that sort of triggered something was when you said that, that there were those 10 years, you know, before the other, 
it's sort of to me it's also like it's not just those 10 years it's the whole picture that has sort of obviously that horror tragic piece of it but it's it, i guess you know when when this happened to my son i was like i think so many people are that we you know i looked at him with horror fear but also a lot of judgment it's like how could he do this to himself and how could he do this to me and his little brother and sister and his mom and his stepmom and all that kind of stuff it was all about us and when i used to hear when I started, when Nick finally got into rehab and they, you know, I would go really reluctantly go to family groups and go to, you know, Al-Anon and all that kind of stuff. I, I would hear over and over again this idea that, you know, the person that is that addiction is an illness and people are disease, have a disease and all that stuff. And it was, for me, it was like nonsense. It was ridiculous. You know, nobody makes somebody go out and use. Um, over time, I realized that it is not a choice. I mean, it's, uh, it's a, nobody wants to be addicted. It's hell. And when I realized that, I started to realize that, you know, instead of that judgmental view, you know, sort of that, that was about Nick doing something wrong, this idea of, you know, Nick was somehow, he was possessed. I mean, he was his demon. What had happened to this kid? You know, what happened to my beautiful boy? I think I, I as I, like I said in the, the book, I realized that, um, oh, he was sick. He had a brain, a problem with his brain. It was not functioning. And so those, what I was going to say in relation to what you said is that, that other 10 years, it's not even that it wasn't him anymore. It was that it was him ill. You know, he was doing stuff. People say, you know, God, he's out of drugs. He's out of his mind. Yes, that's exactly right. That's not who he is. He's, you know, the same kind, lovely person, but he's got this illness and he can't break free of it. He can't get the treatment he needs or he can't see his way out of it because he can't, because his brain is the problem, you know? And so we get so mad at people who, who are addicted because, you know, we want to shake them or we do shake them. You know, don't you see what's going on? You're killing yourself. You're killing yourself. Never mind what you're doing to me. So we get really mad, but it makes it, but you know, they don't see it and it's not their fault. And so, you know, they don't because they can't, you know, they're, that's their brain. The normal, the thing that we rely on to help us make decisions, to help us some, our own, you know, be able to look at ourselves with any degree of objectivity, you know, is that's what's broken and that's what's affected by drugs. And so it's a, it's, it's, you know, maybe it doesn't kind of click to everybody why that distinction is so important. But for me, it's, the, it's everything because it's a difference of looking at somebody with judgment and blame and self-blame for the people, you know, versus looking at somebody with compassion and realizing that, you know, it's like, um, oh, I'm just so, so sorry. And like, there's no making it less sad and less tragic, but at least the piece of it that comes out of it that is around the blame and for parents, self-blame, you know, what did I do wrong? that hopefully kind of goes away and and you know the people i meet i meet people every day or at least i hear from people every day who've lost their kids or or husbands or wives or partners or parents or whoever it is to addiction and there's so much self-blame around it there's so many people looking for answers what did i do wrong what could i have done differently you know the ultimate answer is that sometimes you can't do anything different and people die you know this is a really terrible terrible uh, disease uh, but the people who sort of weather it and they go through the grief and then they you know it's not that they ever forget that grief that grief lives with them forever but they do figure out i think a way of looking at their whole their child's or whomever their whole life the part when they were little and there were these beautiful memories kids you know they, they send me pictures all the time but even the part that relates to their struggle for those 10 or 20 years i mean it's heartbreaking but also it was a struggle and they were in it together they were in it sometimes separately but the whole life you know was kind of what again what life is you know some of it's really hard and it just is and sometimes there's no happy endings and you know and sometimes there's more miracles that come out of it which are 
the people who never feel that they can or that we never feel can get in recovery and stay in recovery do. And so, you know, I, I hear all those horror stories and I also hear these sort of stories of that are incredibly hopeful and uplifting. Yeah, it's a mixed bag, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, I wish I hadn't listened to the school, I wish I had done something. And I'm just curious what you think you could have done differently. Well, part of it, I think, is the whole way that we think about drugs. Um, in, in, in either there's this sort of um, dismissiveness, like, oh, it's out there, but kids are going to use, you know, some kids are going to use, it's just there, and it's a rite of passage, and it's expected. It's about, you know, it's like a, um, it's a you know, peer pressure, everybody's doing it. And so there's an acceptance on one hand. And then on the other hand, there's a sort of black and white, white view that, you know, there's good kids don't use drugs, bad kids do. And sort of these sort of poles of, of views of the way that we look at drug use. Um, and one of them is very judgmental and the other is very sort of, um, it's, it's just a really sort of a view that is, um, it's kind of like it's just a given and it's not something we can, we even need to talk about because it's just part of our culture. And I feel like neither of those are, are, are true. I mean, and so the idea that an 11-year-old kid is using drugs, I guess in some cases maybe it is sort of just a question of being in the wrong, you know, being with a bunch of kids who are getting high and somebody hands a kid a joint and they smoke it without even really thinking about it. Or maybe it is peer pressure. They don't want to look like a you know, loser or whatever and say, oh, I don't do drugs. But a lot of times what we know is, and I know from Nick, is that when he got high, it was not about having fun. When he got high, he describes now when he looks back on the time before he, you know, before he drank and, you know, started drinking, he started smoking pot. And he said the first time he smoked pot, it wasn't like his other friends talked about being high and how, you know, cool it was and how mellow it felt and or how, you know, eating chocolate chip cookies. For him, it was like this absence of anxiety that mm-hmm. he felt for his whole life and so it's sort of like oh my god is this i didn't understand he never he couldn't name that he had anxiety but when he felt the absence of anxiety he realized that he'd been suffering something his whole life and he was like you mean is this how everybody else feels and so it's no surprise that for a kid who is suffering that intense anxiety would want to continue using so the idea if we just make the assumption that somebody who's 11 years old maybe they're going to experiment it's cool you know we're missing the fact that you know maybe there's something else going on and so i guess if i had had you know teacher counselor whoever it was to have a different kind of conversation to say let's see what's going on in this kid's life that he's getting high we might have done what we didn't do which i think might have changed the whole his whole life maybe which is um, brought him to a psychologist, figured out the fact that not only was he suffering from anxiety and depression, but he has very serious bipolar disorder. When he started using meth, all of the anxiety, insecurity, the self-doubt, the feeling that he was you know, ugly, the feeling that he was worthless, the feeling that he had nothing to live for, you know, it was gone because meth replaced it with just this altered state. And some of it was euphoria. Some of it was just... Um, talk about anxiety, like, you know, about math, it's like insane anxiety. And so in some ways, it's like being bipolar, because you he would go from these like, you know, manic, crazy, insane states, jumping off walls, doing stuff that he never literally jumping off walls, doing stuff he would never do to getting so, so, so deeply dark, depressed that he'd be in the corner in his room wanting to disappear and then feeling that there was it was that feeling was never going to end. So a long answer to your question is that if at 11 years old, I knew about 
to look more about the reasons people use drugs than just about drugs. And maybe I would have started to look in a different way at Nick, what else was going on in his life and gotten him some help. Who knows? You know, would he have still gotten as addicted and done what he did over the, I mean, he might have, but maybe not, you know, because there would have been some recognition for the, what was underlying a lot of his use. Trauma was another one. You know, I mentioned the divorce when his mom and I got divorced. God, they missed that in the movie. Yeah. Compared to the book. Yeah. I mean, it was hell and it was, uh, it put Nick through, you know, a child, three-year-old kid's world has exploded. Sometimes parents do it well. You know, it's like they're really, I guess, cool and they, you know, appreciate each other and make sure that the kid's never put in the middle. That was not us. You know, we were at war. And so you have this little tiny child who's in the middle and it's a no-win situation. You know, he was having to fly back and forth three years. His mom lived in LA and I lived in Northern California. He'd get on that airplane in the in the book. There's this theme, and they actually did put it in the movie, this thing where at one point when I would bring Nick to the airport to go visit his mom for joint custody, it was just so emotionally overwhelming for him. I mean, for me, but especially, of course, for him, that it combined, you know, what, what uh, it it was just, it's such a, uh, it's so traumatic for a kid and trauma is the only word for it. I mean, it's like being in a war for them. And sudden, so, so this idea that, you know, it was like, I was trying to say to him, everything, I love you so much. I'm so sorry we're, you're in this situation. I'm so sorry you have to leave. I'm going to miss you so much. It was just the big picture. And so I said, you know, we started to just have this credit code word for each other, everything. And that really is what it was about. And it wasn't just about sort of the obvious love and joy stuff. It was also about the darker, hard stuff. I was just in a, an event in somewhere, Canada, in Regina, Canada, where this mom and this girl came up to me and they both had tattoos on their wrists, everything. And it was their journey, it was our journey. And they pulled through it and they were together and they were at this event together, you know, close as they ever could be, um, but had been through it. And so there's this, um, uh, anyway, you know, it's this journey that, um, uh, again, I've gone off on the tangent, but basically to go back to what you're saying, you know, I really believe that so much drug use isn't about drugs. It's not about just getting high and partying. I really do believe it's about people trying to fix themselves for whatever it is they're dealing with, whether it's social things, whether it's stuff at school, whether it's being bullied, whether it's having learning disabilities, whether it's feeling, having depression or anxiety. Uh, having lost somebody and not being able to sort of deal with it and process it. So if we can recognize that, then maybe we can help people before their use escalates to the point that they're, you know, killing themselves or other people or whatever. Yeah. I love the idea of getting 11 year old Nick a psychologist because that's the same way I use. I mean, I, I did have peer pressure. I was literally the one kid in the group going, guys, don't do this, please don't do this. Oh, really? yeah. And then once I realized I was, I was going to be the pariah of the group, I did it. But I, instantly being this shy, sensitive kid who was so worried about everything, so worried about death, so worried about what other people thought of him, hyper, hyper aware to finally fade away. Wow. I knew right away. Wow. What's interesting to me is from my side of addiction, I don't know. I really, I really do love the idea of trying to figure out why they're using. But at the same time, and I think that should be the starting point. But at the same time, you know, my addiction is an apex predator. I mean, it is a perfectly evolved machine to do one thing, and that is to get comfortable. Right. In my own skin to get that reward center high that I'm doing something right. But the other side of that is what you said, which is that it's getting away. It's not 
I don't think, I mean, I can't speak for you, but I certainly know that Nick has said this. And I think it's, it's also the other side of that though, is to get away from the pain. Yeah. So it's not that euphoria that drugs promise and deliver that usually isn't very short-lived usually, but that is in contrast with, you know, with, with the other experience. It's not like feeling kind of normal. Everything's great in my life. And yeah, it's fun to get high. It's no, it's the other option is hell. Right. No, in my own skin was hell. But at the same time, I don't think there's anything that could have stopped me. I don't think there was anything because I got piss tested at 12. I went to therapy. I was part of all the groups. And there was just not, it was just like a. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I. Yeah, I don't know. know. But, you know, again, unknowable. But, you know, what if there was like one therapist who kind of got you, who you connected with, who really was going to go deep with you, who you stuck with, figured out what else was going on. And I mean. Who knows? You know, it's just unknowable. But I kind of feel like it's a maybe it's an idealistic idea. But it feels to me that 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 is not a given course for somebody. Even if you've got addiction in your family, you know, you've got the, the genes. You know, even the you know the genetic predisposition. Even if you've got all the other sort of risk factors and all that stuff. You know, the question of can we mitigate those risk factors? And I kind of feel like you know we can if you help. I, I was visiting a family, and you know, they were like a, a family of addiction you know mom dad grandparents aunts uncles kids so they had this young child and the assumption of course was that it was all going to go the same way um and these social social services came in and instead of you know doing any punitive things instead of driving you know trying to get the kid away from the parents what they did is they descended it was this amazing program and they descended on this family and just helped them they helped the parents get in recovery they helped the mom who had some serious mental illness to help her get into um get treatment they helped her get a job, so you know she. So they were starting. She was starting to be self-sustaining. They helped her get childcare to help with the littler kids. I mean, there built was a safety net around this family, and that kid, whose course was probably, you know, preordained in some ways. I mean, we all could have written that story in the end of the story, either which would have been either death or prison. And everything changed, you know, for that kid. And so I have to feel that there is a way that we hopefully can help. I think that there is. I also think that it's it's very easy to to look back on things yeah. as a codependent loving parent and to look for what you could have done. Totally. When I'm not convinced, it's really easy for me to go there and to go, "Mom, you had no time for me." You know, you wanted to solve everything with with physical things you know but you had no time for me and you were so unaware of where i was at but for me i feel often i'm rewriting history yeah i get that is and i feel like i'm rewriting history for something that is makes no sense which is the self-destruction of an addict to start to make sense as, as a creature of narrative yeah you know to, but I'm, I'm not all i would say i guess that is it also is all the other stuff is true too, I think. You can't sort of deny your experience and how you experience it and how you remember it. I mean, it's real, you know? And so I think that it's not that it's about blame. It's not about it's somebody's fault. Of course it's not. But also, you know, the idea that um, this happens in a vacuum, it's just not true, you know? It doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, if I did everything right, if I, in quotes, you know, I'm, I don't blame myself or I don't beat myself up, but I know I ought to put Nick through a lot of hell when he was growing up. Yeah, you know, I don't say that's why he became addicted. That's why he almost died, but it didn't help, and it did traumatize him. And it's just true. 
It's just a fact. You know, it's not about guilt, responsibility, or anything. But it, to, but to pretend that didn't happen also. Um, and sometimes he'll say, you know, oh man, you know, it's not about that. But that's also is like he's trying to protect me, and that's okay. I can live with the fact that I made a lot of mistakes. And again, I'm not saying it's my fault that he became addicted. I think that that is genetic, and it's who he is. It's what his brain chemistry was. It's the reason that he, you know, wanted that alcohol when he was, you know, a kid. Again, very quickly, even though he was sick as a dog. I don't know. I just feel like it's all really, you know, we're complicated and it's complicated and it's, uh, um, uh, there's no like easy solution and there's no right way to be a parent or being a kid or any of that stuff. But, you know, I think that we all, you know, we, we learn, you know, and I feel like, again, I wish I'd done things differently. Not that it would have maybe changed the story, but I do think it would have made Nick suffer less if he'd had, you know, somebody who really understood what was going on and trying to help him in that way. Yeah, I mean, I have those thoughts too with my son, where it's like my son was born in chaos. Mm. You know, he was born with me, still drinking and drugging. He was young through a horrific custody battle. You know, and there's like all this research, like, oh, the first five years are the most important. Like, I botched him. <laughs> I have fantasies about having another kid and getting to raise him in a happy, getting it right, yeah, getting to raise him in a happy, loving home because that was so the opposite. And that, yeah, Jax now has to that's his cross to bear. I've like taken my problems and heaped it onto a 10 year old. You know, it's very hard to find a way to kind of feel in a way that you're taking the weight back. Yeah, no, that's, it's intense. But it also, it goes back to, I would say from the outside, when I hear that, I would say, you know, everything you just said is true. It did. He had five, you know, he had those years of hell and that, it, um, but it also isn't your fault. I mean, nobody chooses this. It's like you have this thing, this thing called addiction. I mean, hopefully at some point it would make it easier for your son to understand if I don't, who knows, you know, I don't know anything about him. I don't know him. But if there is resentment, if there is anger that is left there or that someday emerges, that the other side of this is understanding. It's like, no, this is, you know, he did what he could, but he had this thing and he was struggling and he was fighting. And then instead looking at that, to look at who you are now, you know, that you've been sober for eight years and that by then, you know, nine years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and that you've done, you know, you're this great person, this great dad. How do you work through the, the guilt when it comes up, when you do feel like, God, I really screwed up or, you know, I, I, is there a weird answer to just say that I just accept it? What about I, through the heat of the moment though? You know, cause now Life's oh, in the old days. Are you kidding? I was like, yeah. uh, during those years of the guilt, I was always looking for an answer, an explanation, and I was always to take responsibility for everything that happened. And part of it is, I think it's normal. You know, parents do feel, you know, we look to our kids for, you know, we, we do our best. And then if we feel like we did well, I mean, the problem too, is that we live in a culture that often judges people not by, you know, how they are and the ways that really matter, you know, how they are inside, if they feel healthy, peace, you know, or if they're able to have relationships, you know, love, you know, all those kinds of things. But instead we're looking at the outsides of them and, you know, looking for all these external signs that they're doing great. You know, they're good students, they're good athletes, whatever those kinds of things are going to go to a good college. So I guess, you know, the idea of, of, of learning the hard way that those are not what's important. You know, I feel through all those years, you know, I, I feel guilty for missing what was really important and what was going on inside him. You know, the fact that he'd gotten so good at telling me and showing me and his mom and his teachers and all the adults around him what we wanted to see and not what was really going on. As I said, you know, the feeling guilty about not recognizing that there was other problems that maybe if I had looked at them. 
And when I was so desperate to find answers, I was absolutely willing to take responsibility and to beat myself up. But first of all, it was useless. It doesn't do any good for anybody. And second of all, I guess it's it's a recognition of the fact that, you know, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. Parents, you know, the best meaning parents and most parents are, you know, that's all they are is wanting to do right by their kids. We all fuck up and we're going to fuck up and everybody's different and everybody has their own shit to deal with. And we go forward and we do the best we can. And so I think it's okay to feel guilty. And I think it's okay to feel, to not let ourselves off the hook completely. And I wish I did better. You know, I just, I do. It's just, I mean, I wish I would have recognized the fact that those words about not putting kids through a divorce that is traumatic, you know, obviously traumatic, I wish I didn't do it. And do I feel, uh, I mean, I guess at this point, you know, there's no use in feeling guilty about it. I mean, I probably still do at some level, but it's, a, you know, I accept it. It's just the way it is. And I can live with that guilt. And Nick, I know maybe there were times, actually, there were times when he really resented it in the same way. It was all my fault that he had everything in his life. All of his problems were my fault. The fact that he was addicted, that was my fault. The fact that he was, you know, had a hard time having relationships, maintaining sobriety, all those things were my fault. And I was willing to take them on because I, believe that he was right. You know, he also has come around from that to realize again, um, it's not true. You know, it's not true. Uh, and it's also, and what is true, you know, the mistakes that I did make, again, they're part of our history. They're part of our story. And they're just the way it's, we have to just live with them. And it doesn't do any good to feel that, you know, anger and that remorse and that, you know, it's the, I think it's the Frank McCourt quote that maybe I even heard from your mom, which is that resentment, is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You know, so you can live with that, you can live with that, you can live with that, and it just doesn't help. You know, at some point, you're hurting yourself. Part of having an addict in your life is an exercise of powerlessness, I think. Because let's let's just, for the sake of the argument, by the time they're addicted, it's, it's a little late to start finding a therapist that they're going to connect with. By the time I was seriously into let's say cocaine and ecstasy when i was like 15 the coolest therapist could have come up and i just wouldn't have connected i mean sure. i was disconnected yeah. from a Nick, part when i finally did get nick into therapy he showed up high on meth so that's probably not a great environment no. to do yeah really real serious therapy right yeah once the machine is going that's why it's like yeah i, I see this little vulnerable period where maybe it would have worked but once i for me, the harder drugs, cocaine and the ecstasy, it really stole a part of my humanity, mm -hmm. you know, where it's like, I just didn't connect to people the same way. I really thought me and cocaine understood things that you didn't, Yeah, you know, and it's a good way to say that. They're really <laughs> powerful. Yeah. And so at that point, my mom was just along for the ride. And I'm curious from your point of view, when you're trying to stay employed and you're trying to keep a marriage and you're trying to stay being a good father to your other two children how on earth do you start to find a normal quote-unquote healthy existence while you have somebody killing themselves slowly i'll answer that if i can and then i want to ask you something because yeah. of what you just said i but i guess what i would say about that is um it would be so nice if there were easy answers to any of these questions, if life was black and white and you could, you know, do that. And when, one of the things that I think is amazing about Al-Anon and some of the, you know, the, the support for families, parents around addiction is that it helps us with that. But the, one of the things that also annoys me and maybe even makes me angry about some of that is that it can make it seem easier 
way way easier than it is like you just have to do these things you just have to you know close the door you have to just focus on yourself you you know don't enable practice tough love you know all this kind of stuff as if it's easy and if it's the solution and it's neither you know it's neither and i think part of it is accepting the fact that you are dealing that we are dealing with something that is really hard you know it's the idea that it's not the same exactly it's not the same at all if somebody if a child got a serious cancer and was dying there's so many differences of course you know addiction cancer doesn't come with the kinds of resentment and anger and behaviors and destruction and self-destruction all those kinds of things that addiction does but there still is the reality that that is going to preoccupy the family even if we wish it wouldn't but if you have a kid who's dying of cancer for 10 years and there are other children and your marriage is stressed and some marriages don't make it and it's all that stuff is just real that's you know that's true of addiction too again the addiction adds different stresses different complications it makes it a lot more volatile in so many different ways but the idea that we can sort of put that stuff behind us and really sort of just live as if that wasn't happening uh, it's just not realistic and it's probably not it's probably not ultimately healthy either because there was a time when when daisy and jasper the littler kids my my younger kids nick's little brother and sister they were so young that i sort of had this maybe this fantasy maybe it was more of a hope that they were so young that they didn't understand what was going on but they absorbed every single second when nick was using and when but it wasn't just that they were worried about nick and that they were confused about what was going on and he would come and he would go but also their mom and dad were completely freaked out i just don't think there's anything that could have you know I, nothing can make that go away even though i wish it could but i did have to get to the point where i did have to function i you know we tried our best to take care of daisy and jasper as well as we could to create the most stable environment to be there for them to not get so preoccupied that we were unable to do that you know i needed to work i needed to make money i needed to sleep sometimes because you know, can't function when you don't sleep and i didn't sleep for years and it's all a lot of support a lot of conversations writing helped me a lot al-anon meetings did help me a lot uh, therapy my own therapy helped a lot but it's um i just you know i just know that we all want it to be easier than it is but part of it i think is just accepting the fact that if you've got somebody in your family who you love who's sick with anything it's going to be hell and we can try to protect ourselves and try to separate and all that stuff because we have to as much as we can to stay to you know marriages do explode and don't you know they don't survive this and but it's also true of families that have you know they, i know a family they kid had cancer it just was too much stress on that couple and they ended up splitting up and it went on for years addiction is different because there is difference about blame and there's difference anyway the thing i was going to ask you about is you said that once you were whatever age 15 or whatever it was and you were on that trajectory and things had gone that that window was gone that nobody could have stopped it nobody could have slowed it nobody could have you know gotten in the way of that train that was going so therefore do you feel like no matter what anybody did that you had to go through everything you went through that there was nothing that ever could have stopped that train no kind of intervention no different kinds of treatment no different kinds of attention by you know whatever whether it's a therapist whether it's a different kind of programmer that you had to go where you went to to get to the bottom that you ended up going to and it took all those years and that you had to almost die all those times and, uh, i mean there was just no way in other words if i guess what i'm saying almost it's like how what if you saw somebody else who was you at 15 would you just sort of say hang on you're in for a hell of a ride or are there things that you could imagine doing for that person or somebody could and doing for that person that might make that not go so bad and not go so long i think that magic happens when you sober up right so if i have a friend who is killing themselves i'm all for finding a way to get him three days sober and then he can go back out 
and then fish them and get them three days sober again. And then you can go back out because every single time somebody gets sober, there's a chance. Yeah. Every single time somebody gets clear headed, there's a chance. However, it's a couple of things. One with meth in particular, the 28 day model doesn't work. No. My first year and a half was completely gray. I didn't see color. Like to put it as visually as I can, I didn't see color. There was no medication that could help my pleasure center was ravaged. Yeah. It was completely fucked. And I could not produce dopamine or endorphins for the life of me. Yeah, Nick says the same thing. So to put me in some cute $50,000 28-day program and spit me out wouldn't have done it Yeah, because I would have needed that relief so much. I am excited for the, the new world of looking into recovery do I think that there's absolutely nothing that could have stopped me? I don't know. That's a, that's a tough answer. I don't know. I know that I, at one point, was dragged out of my house in the middle of the night. I was taken to the middle of the Allegheny Mountains in West Virginia. I was there in the snow in the wilderness for three months. And then I went to a farm for bad kids. That was a year, something like that, on this farm where I was sober the whole time. I woke up every single day. Now, that's a pretty extreme intervention. And my mom had saved all my dad's child support payments and it had blown through all of that. And I came back and I just did it harder and harder. Mm -hmm. So, But that, also, that year might have saved your life. Could have. Could have. I mean, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to say, like, did my mom writing about me contribute to my using or did my mom being busy contribute to my using? It's very hard to say and there's no definitive answers, but what I will say is that I am incredibly fortunate of how hard I burned out because my friend who just passed last week didn't mm -hmm. and he would almost wreck his life and then get sober and then things would get better and then almost wreck his life again. The reason why I haven't relapsed is because there's no illusion. Like there's just no illusion that it could ever work out there. Mm -hmm. There's just none. I've done the experiment so many times. Yeah, yeah, I, I get, yeah. Yeah, it ends in just pure destruction. I mean, if I were to buy, uh, if I were to bum a cigarette from somebody today, I would have a pack by midnight. And my first relapse is always cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And it's always a great reminder not to go any further. Mm -hmm. I keep a pack of Newports in my truck. And that's because that is always the first relapse. Before I do anything else, that's the first relapse. And so I haven't smoked in over two years, something like that. With that pack in your truck. With the pack in my truck. But I'm not allowed to have a drink before I go smoke that pack. And that will generally remind me. Yeah. So it's tough. Yeah. Would I tell a 15-year-old man you're fucked? No, I would not tell them that they're fucked. Would I tell the parents of a 15-year-old he's along for a ride? Probably. Yeah. I, I would, yeah. It's, there's no easy answer. Yeah. But I think that the point there about, you know, I don't necessarily think that, I don't know what the program you went to is like, but I definitely know that when Nick was, you know, once I got Nick a lot of bad advice, you're right, 28 days, forget it. It's a nuts. I mean, Nick would, it works you know, for, get, It works it, for heroin guys. I don't know. I, I mean, I maybe so. sometimes, yeah. but 28 days is probably not enough for somebody. I mean, if you've been using drugs for years and you, it's not just the drugs, it's your 
mind, your emotions, like you said, the dopamine, you know, all that, and your relationships. I mean, you you know, it's not going to get fixed in 28 days. It's a lot, you know, it's a, it's, it's a long, long, long journey, as you say. And the idea that people told me to send Nick to boot camp, again, I look back and it's like, how, if you've got a kid who is already feeling really shitty about themselves and already already feeling, you know, that they're destroying their lives and destroying the lives of people around them. You know, you're going to send them to a place where they're going to get punished and they're going to have to march in the desert. It makes no sense. But I'm well, not see, saying but because I don't think it's a good thing. On the other hand, though, what I was going to say is that if you can get somebody so they're not shooting heroin for a month, that's probably a good thing. A year. Unquestionably. Yeah. So yeah. that's my point is that sort of like, you know, it gives you more time, maybe if nothing else. I mean, during that year that you were in that program, whether the, you look back and you relapsed right the second it was over, there was a year during which hopefully there might have been some recovery inside the the brain, you know, not not putting meth in every day. But the other thing is, you know, that during that year, you could have overdosed and died easily, right? So, I mean, it, it was the, the, just to give you understanding of the program, the program was holistic. There was therapy and there was yoga and there's lots of exercise there's lots of wellness i was given purpose i was introduced to tools which were my first love and i wrote curriculum for a trade school for many years i got physically strong and willing i mean i came out of there on top of the world it wasn't like i was beaten down Mm -hmm. in some ways it was punitive but i came back with this incredible gift of a second chance and then blew it again it's just the you know, it was like, I realized, man, you know, doing drugs really sucks. I'm going to start dealing drugs. That seems like the better. That's what happened in my mind. You know, yeah, yeah. it's like, it seems like the better rub is to be selling them than to be. So, yeah, yeah. I just, but, but I guess all I'm saying is that maybe that year, even though you relapsed after that year, two things, it could have saved your life. And maybe the stuff you learned there during that year helped you later when you did finally get in recovery i don't know yeah i mean i do believe in making it tough on addicts personally i feel like had i known my rent was going to get paid and that everything would have kept going i don't know what would have happened but for me and so many of my friends who came from my meth world who used with me into recovery i know there's one common denominator and that's that it got really tough yeah and that their sister outed them to their parents and made it really tough. My mom disowned me. I don't know if she told you that when I was out there, if you guys were talking. No. Uh, yeah, she, uh, one, there's two examples. One time I came to her house and she held a pencil, a sharp pencil to my throat. She said, don't ever come back to my house. Oh. <laughs> I didn't. The second time was the... That's hard to imagine uh, anybody doing that, but especially... Annie, yeah, she wrote a piece. It's on my website about that one specific incident. The second one was when there was a private eye following me around. It turned out that my mom had babysat him as a kid. And so he called my mom and he said, I'm following your son. I'm going to put him away for a long time. He's really to save you. No, because I had hurt this kid. Oh, and he he represented. Oh, the, the, ra- the it, okay, got it. It was the other. That was a private eye hired by the yeah by the other family. family. Right. And he said, you know, your son's with real criminals. I've got him dead to rights. My mom came over to my house in the city and just said, I smoked meth. Good luck. I hope you make it. And then was gone. We were. She was out of my life. And I feel like that isolation helped yeah. tremendously. So I am not saying that there's nothing you can do. I think. Often, one of the best things you can do is like not do as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also it depends. I mean, everybody's different in every circumstance. I mean, when somebody goes where you went, 
it sounds like a pencil in the throat or that, you know, it may be the, the, this, the only way to go. You know, certainly if it's unsafe, certainly if, you know, if it's, there were times when, yeah, Nick wasn't, you know, we were cut off from Nick. He wasn't allowed to come here at all because, you know, this little brother and sister who were, they were really vulnerable. And, you know, and he was, as you know, people on meth are crazy. You just don't know what they're going to do and stuff he would never, ever, ever have done. And that, I know when he looks back, he thinks that those limits, those, those drawing those lines were, were critical. But the thing that I have a hard time reconciling is a, is a world in which everything is supposed to be black and white and we are told how we're supposed to behave because everybody's different. And so this is how I know that there's no easy answer and there's no right answer that's right for everybody. I cannot tell you how many people I've heard from who told me, who've told me that they are alive for one reason only. And that's because their parents did what Annie did, what your mom did. They just cut them off and said, you are on your own and you've got to figure this out. You've got to hit bottom and you've got to do it. Many, many, many people, that's the only reason they're alive. You cannot imagine how many people I've told you that if my parents ever would have given up on me and kicked me out of the house and put me back where I was on the streets, I'd be dead. Both. You know, it's just everybody's different and everybody, uh, uh, that's the problem I think about sort of where we, hopefully we're coming out of this idea that things are black and white, that there's one way to go because there isn't, you know, and I, I just feel like, um, you know, both of those experiences are, are, are real. They're true. And, you know, people didn't, we can't count, discount the other ones because it fits into, you know, kind of what not just what we're told, but what we've come to believe. I mean, and that's, you know, I, I, just, I just don't even, it's hard to, you know, to even understand that. It's hard to reconcile that. And also it's, what does that even mean? You know, like if, if, in other words, there's no even definition of what that means to practice quote unquote tough love. I mean, sometimes tough love means, you know, I will only help, I won't help you at all unless you were willing to go into treatment. Some people would say that's enabling. You know, they have to do it themselves. I mean, but is it, you know, I don't know. I mean, for everybody, all I know is that in Nick's case, there were times when it felt like for him that he talks about it, that if I had not shut that door emotionally, as well as literally, you know, no money, no, you can't come home, it's not safe, whatever, that he would be, he wouldn't have made it. And other times where he said that if I didn't come get him off the streets, which was the opposite I was being told by some people and certainly by you know, the al world, that he'd be dead. What's right? You know, that's why it's just, I, that's why, you know, it's because we all want it to be easier and it's just not. And we have to go through this course. And the other, only other thing I, I, it just, it just, I don't even know. It, I was going to say it bothers me that trying to, for when you're navigating that world are the people who are really judgmental about what you're doing because you are suffering so much anyway. And so if people are telling you, that you are either doing too much or not enough for the person you love, for your child, it doesn't help. You know, it's like you are already in hell and all you need to do is to be made feel guilty that it's your fault because you're doing too much or you're not doing enough. And I heard those things for years and it didn't help. You know, I had to figure out this core. It helped me to get a lot of advice. It helped me going to Al-Anon meetings. It helped me going to therapists. It helped me talking to other parents to get information to try to navigate this. But anybody who sort of tried to tell me that there was one way to do it, which people said all the time, it didn't help. And I don't believe that they were right because there was no one way to go. You kind of like you draw these lines in the sands and then you kind of 
change, you know, redraw them because things change. And, and part of it is what changes outside, you know, what's, what's going on with him, with us. But also part of it is our minds are changing. You know, I learned something differently. I felt differently. I was in a different vulnerable situation. I maybe had to close the door for a while. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, this is, you know, this is what I think is the problem with the self-help world right now is how quick people are to say, I have the solution for you, which is if anytime somebody says, I have the solution for you, they're full of shit because yeah. life is so complex. I always worry about keeping an addict in your life because we are master manipulators. You know, I know a lot of people who got second mortgages on their house oh, yeah. to send their kid to a treatment that was not the solution or to get them help that was not the solution. I think triage does have to be taken into consideration is how do you preserve the most life? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a it's a dance. It's a balance. Yeah. And it's there's no easy way to go. There's no formula. That's the thing. That's yeah, exactly so. what you're saying. You know, if somebody were to ask me, should I mortgage my house to, you know, to pay for this kid's, you know, 17th time in treatment? Which people I, do. I, I, they yeah. do. But also, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say no. I, in other words, I wouldn't necessarily say you shouldn't. Because sometimes that's what it takes. But I also wouldn't say you should. Because sometimes it's a you know, it's just, you're, you're not going to have a house and that's not going to help anybody. But again, this idea that there is a right answer always is just, it's just not true. And I know that because I meet the people who have experienced every single one of these versions of things. Somebody says that 70, it took 17 times in treatment. And I'm, it, I finally, finally have been able to stay sober. And if I had not had that 17th time, I would be dead. Well, maybe they're wrong. But I'm not going to discount what they're saying, what their experience tells them. So, you know, it's just really hard. And that's why people are always looking for like simpler solutions, like some of the addiction medications that help people on, you know, with opioids. You know, they really do help people. They help people stay alive. But they're not the solution. You know, it's a it's such a complicated problem. So, you know, and we want easier solutions. And this is a really hard problem. I and mean, we're talking about is something that's not just about it's not just about brain chemistry, but it's also about life. You know, it's about relationships. It's about you know, we can't just help somebody, you know, even it's not even enough to stay off drugs. I mean, we talked about this. Nick said that when he was finally sober, part of the reason he partly thinks that he relapsed all these times after he did stay sober for a long time was because he'd missed all those years when we are supposed to learn things about life, you know, not just the practical things like how to get a job and keep a job, but how and show up at work, but to get broken up with. So, you know, he had a relationship he was broken up with. He was so devastated that he relapsed. I mean, it's like he just didn't know how to cope. You know, so part of sobriety was about, yeah, learning to be a person, learning to be an adult, learning to deal with emotions, uh, learning to work, but also learning to go have ups and downs and to experience sadness and to experience joy, uh, all the things that he never had. And the other part of it was also part of the reason recovery world became critical for him was that he didn't know you could have fun. I don't know if this is something you can relate to, but he said that because every association, he just had the assumption that if you did anything, even if you just went to the movies, you had to be high. To talk to people, you had to be high. To go to a bar, you had to be high. To talk to a girl, you had to be high. You know, he just didn't know that there was any other way. And suddenly he was finally, finally, finally. Right now, you know, Nick lives in LA. He sees a psychiatrist who he's in treatment for his um, bipolar disorder. He says that's essential. And that involves talk therapy and medication. He's in 12 steps. He goes to meetings all the time. And a big part of that is the recovery work steps. But it also is having a network of people who take care of each other and uh, also, you know, have this joy about life together because they share recovery 
but that's it. You know, it's all about they all surf together. They they go to movies together. They hang out together. It's like it's like oh yeah, you can have a life sober. That he and he didn't know that. And not only can you have a life sober, but it can be better than you ever knew life could be. And and you know, I'm telling you stuff you know. You've been there and you you're living it now. Yeah, and that's why I started this program. It's called How to Human because from 12 to 22, I didn't get to develop. You know, for the most part. And so I came out at 22 with no skills. Yeah. I didn't know how to be a partner. I didn't know how to be an employee. I didn't know how to pay taxes. None of none of it. Uh, and I had to learn the hard way. I had a sponsor who had gone from being a lush bartender to a multimillionaire in provisions. He basically sold bars everything but booze. So the ginger, you know, manu manufactured his own ginger ales and mixes and all that stuff. A relationship took him out seven years sober. Because he had spent the first seven years making money and right. not being in a relationship. And when it came to being in a relationship, he was a newcomer. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, that's yeah, that's. Powerful. It was devastating. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's a really good thing to know and keep in mind because it's not just about any one thing, you know. By the way, if it was their 17th time and it was about mortgage in their house, I probably would say, don't do it. Yeah. I would recommend not do it. But I would also say that it's something you got to figure it out. Because it does, it might be the thing that would, I, again, I, I, I feel like it's probably at that point, you probably need a house. You don't want to be destitute yourself. So you have to weigh all this stuff and there are no guarantees. But at the same time, I guess it's, um, the point I was making more about is that this sort of, um, you know, the black and white responses that were, you know, that, you know, as if we can presume to tell somebody else what they need to do for themselves and for their family. But anyway, the whole idea about how to human is, is I mean, to, truthfully, I, I met a girl who was is in recovery, and she was just in—I um, think she was first year in high school, in college—and she'd been through hell, hell that you know you're familiar with. You lived it, and you know, and we lived it. And she said that being in recovery, this idea of living, you know, aware, awake, conscious—you know—for the first time ever, and realizing that it's not just about not doing drugs, but it's about having relationships. It's about being a good person. You know, trying your best to be a good person, to do the right thing, to try to always figure out whatever you can to be better, you know, to do better. So she said that she started at her college, she was starting a program that was just like, it was like a 12-step program for people who had no experience with drugs and alcohol. It was just about being a person because that's really, it's really, you know, that's what it's about. It's about living well, you know, mm -hmm. it's about living better. And I think she's right. It's like, I think everybody should go through it. Not, you don't want people to go through pain. You don't want people to go through near dying or dying, of course, but, but, the kinds of self-awareness, the self-searching, the self I mean, all that stuff is like stuff that I think can make anybody's life better. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the steps and 12-step programs. I think, you know, even if you only do it once and then you go back out to your miserable existence, I think you've, you've gained some stuff that yeah. you'll get to take with you. How did the experience with Nick inform how you wanted to be a parent to your younger two? Because it must have, did it have any? It, it did for sure. I guess, I guess, huh, uh. Well, I guess I wasn't going to be naive about and sort of lackadaisical like that. I, that. You know, those teachers said to me at 11 years old, oh, it's fine. You know, I was going to be more on it, I think. And so I was, um, I didn't also want to be, on the other hand, some sort of, you know, like reactive parent that because of what we'd been through that I didn't let my kids, the other kids, Daisy and Jasper, you know, have a life and I was going to kind of stand guard over the time and all that stuff. Because I knew that, first of all, it wasn't the right thing to do. And second of all, I know that doesn't work. So maybe I did have a little bit of a, pay a little bit of a different kind of attention. I hear this over and over again. You know, he, people tell me about their kids who ended up becoming addicted and either dying or, or 
you know, just suffering and struggling in so many different ways, by saying at first, you know, he was amazing. He was a great student. He was so smart. He did all these accomplishments. He was the captain of this or the captain of that or the queen of whatever. And I, it just says everything about, you know, how we think about life and how we think about our children. It's like, that's not what's important. And I was that person, I think, when Nick was young. And it's not intentional. I wasn't like, I'm not beating myself up again. I'm not saying I was a bad person, a bad parent. But I did think, I did learn from that experience that that is not what's important at all. You really want to look at, you know, we have these ideas of what we want for our kids and what we want our kids to be, where what we need to do, I think, is look at our kids for who they are and figure out who they are and support that. So I think maybe that was a little bit different. I was less hung up on those external uh, measures, those barometers that tell us sort of how our kids are doing, tried to really figure out who they were and encourage who they were and allow them to kind of be who they were. I also, uh, you know, they were not, you didn't have to talk about drugs in the same way you might have to talk about it to other kids because they knew the reality, you know, right. and, and they seen it, they lived it with their brother. And so that in one interesting, weird way was that it was almost that in some ways I had to help them navigate a world in which everyone who was using drugs at all was not going to become addicted and on the streets. So that if they went to you know a party and they saw a lot of kids getting high, which of course, you know, does that mean all those people are going to be like Nick, you know, shooting drugs on the street and homeless and right, robbing people and all that kind of stuff. And so like this fear level of all that stuff, it's also, and that's a tricky one. You know, what do you, how do you sort of measure that and weigh that without, you know, it's not about hysteria. It's about you know, the, the reality. So anyway, that was part of the conversation too. It's sort of like, how do you know? What can you do? Um, what do you do? You know, I guess I was older. I was a little bit more stable. And I think that was a good thing. You know, I think it's, you know, you know what it's like to have a kid when you're a kid and whether it's, you know, chronologically a kid or emotionally a kid. I was a pretty selfish, you know, I was only 23 when Nick was born. I don't know how. I was 19. 19 when Jax was born. Yeah. And so I did a lot of stuff that was like in my mind that was like justified things that it was really because it was what I wanted to do and it was all selfish. And I think I was less selfish when the other kids were, I was more able to have that perspective. But also I'd been, you know, I was using drugs until Nick was little. And so I hadn't been for many years by the time Daisy and Jasper had, you know, and I was just, I, I knew myself better and stuff. So I guess I generally felt maybe just more stable as a person and as a, as a parent. But, you know, there's again, no easy solutions and um, you know I guess part of it is just luck you know if one of them had gone off the edge and become the person that you know was what I know a person who starts using meth or heroin or something like that could be you know part of it is just strapping on the seatbelt because you know you're in for a wild ride but the one thing I guess I wouldn't have done that I would have done differently and and I didn't have to you know thankfully but um I wouldn't have been in denial for as long as I was. And again, maybe it wouldn't have helped to jump on it quicker, like you're saying. You know, maybe it's just a it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. But um, you know, instead of sending Nick to a 28-day program, uh, if I was back there again, knowing about what meth does to the brain and to a life around the brain, then you know, I wouldn't have stupidly, you know paid money to somebody who told me they were going to send my kid back in 28 days healed, cured, you know, drug-free. But maybe I would have found a program that really was long-term and that really helped not only keep somebody sober, but started to treat them, to teach them about recovery and about triggers and about all that kind of stuff and also to help them build up their life in other ways. Uh, again, no guarantees that it would have worked, but yeah, I think knowledge is power in some ways and I just didn't know. Yeah. 
I'm going to ask you a few questions now from from the audience, and cool. some of them we've already touched on. So, can you talk about ways in which we can learn from those who seem like lost causes? Oh, it's a good question. It's a hard one. I guess the first thing I would say is I don't, unless somebody dies, I don't think there's anybody anybody who's a lost cause. Because I hear stories of people who are the last people that you think could ever, 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 ever stop using and go into recovery who do. I mean, people who have been using for decades, you know, in their 50s, 60s, something finally happens and they finally, something clicks and everything. And suddenly they're, they, they do get sober. And then the question becomes, you know, if it's, is it possible to heal the damage in a family relationships? And a lot of times it isn't too much damage, but sometimes it is. It's sort of people are, you know, underneath all this pain, there's always love. I mean, people love each other, parents, kids, whatever. It's under there somewhere, mostly. I mean, there are some psychopaths, I guess it doesn't apply to. but And so they're real, where there's life, there is hope. I always think about, I was just in San Francisco last night on the way back, and I walked through, um, I was near the Tenderloin, and I kind of walked by the edge of the Tenderloin, of course, where a lot of people are homeless. In San Francisco, there's you know so many homeless people, and people are shooting up on the streets. And you know, there was a time when... I, I, I would not look into the faces of these people. It was just too disturbing. And I kind of had this intense judgment. You know, these people are pathetic. You know, what, what are they doing? Why are they on the streets? Why don't they go, you know, get their shit together? Uh, sometimes it was just fear. I'd walk across the street because it was, I was afraid. And sometimes there was reason to be afraid. But now I don't do that. I kind of, I intentionally look into these people's faces and I realize that, um, you know, Nick was one of those people for a while. He was on the streets in San Francisco and other cities. and. I think about, you know, how they got there, how they're living, and I think about their parents. And I say, every one of these people have parents. You know, did their parents just give up? Did their parents think their kid's dead? Did their parents still have any hope? Did their parents, you know, write them off? I mean, what's, what's going on in every, of course, who knows, but everybody. And I know that for many, many people, it is hopeless. I mean, it's not going to change, but there are miracles that happen all the time. So I guess I, I don't know, you know, I guess I would say that you know, you, you know, there's always reason to to hope because do, miracles do happen, and uh, and miracles sometimes sound like it means that you know there's going to be like this flash of lightning out of the sky that's suddenly going to change somebody and make somebody you know get sober and stay sober and their life's going to improve and they're going to have this great life. You know, I don't even think that's I don't think that's it. It's not that. Sometimes little things happen and somebody's life changes, and sometimes it can change incrementally. Again, I meet people all the time, so I know that every kind of idea if I have of what addiction looks like and what recovery looks like is wrong because there's so many different versions. So I'll hear from somebody who was on the streets for years and years and years and some small interaction got somebody to go into a like a Salvation Army type, you know, place and they met connected with one person who gave them hope and gave them the attention that they hadn't gotten for decades and one day builds on another and builds on another and suddenly they have a life and they're married maybe or they have, you know, they're helping other people, a lot of people who end up going through this, understand it in a way that they end up finding meaning in their life by helping other people who are struggling. So, yeah, I guess, um, I don't know if that answers the question or not, but. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if I told you this, but I got sober because my life was going to shit and the neighbor girl told me she thought she was an alcoholic. And I said, that's so great. I know it'll work for you. My mom's in a 12-step program. Uh, this will help. And she said, will you go with me? Oh, man. And so I accompanied her for Oh, six months basically. And I decided once I was there, you know, this could probably help with the court. You know, this could probably help with the custody battle. Like maybe you should sober up. You can pass the piss test. You can get a sponsor that can testify for you. 
And then it turned out the whole time that she was taking me to meetings, but I thought I had oh been accompanying God. her to meetings. That's uh, that's an amazing story. Uh, it's it's really yeah. funny. But see, that's a great yeah. That's an imperfect story because it shows that you never know what's going to be. But you, there you, always is. There is hope. There is yeah. hope. And even if that first part of it was very cynical, I'm going to do this in order to get what I want: custody, you know, jail, whatever. Not you know. Who cares? You know. What, yeah. No, I mean that's what I tell people in in meetings. As I I say, you know, you don't even have to earnestly want this. You just have to do it as best you can. And because I was, you know, I was going through this twelve step program seriously because I wanted a sponsor that could yeah. come testify for me seriously. That's amazing. Yeah. But that, so yeah, that's like the um, line that you know the, it's a twelve step line. I think it comes from twelve steps, which is fake it till you make it. Yeah. Another, you know, I've been doing this stuff with this guy on death row. And he talks about um, when he became, he went from being, you know, what he calls himself a thug and he was, you know, he was, he did terrible things to people and is, you know, admits it all. But one of the things he said is that when, when he faced his death sentence, it was a choice then of either killing himself or going insane or figuring something else out. And he ended up figuring something else out. And what it turned out for him was that it was a whole Buddhist meditation practice and it really changed his life. And he said that he didn't get it when all these people were talking to him about Buddhism and practice and what does it mean and sitting and meditating. He just didn't understand it. It was so far from his anything he could relate to at all. And um, this Tibetan teacher came to see him because um, through some other people and the Tibetan teacher was talking to him about all these you know things that again were just beyond his comprehension. He didn't get it when they, all the enlightenment nirvana you know samsara they didn't care he didn't understand it at all and the teacher said that he could see in his face that he was bewildered and the teacher said you know you don't have to understand it you know practice and your mind will follow fake it till you make it and he said the way that that what happened is that, that triggered a memory from him when he was a little kid um living with one of his aunts he was in and out of foster homes and in and out of um, juvenile halls and boys homes and all this kind of stuff but he was home with one of his aunts and he said that what well, she used to have a record player and she would play the same records over and over again and there was a funkadelic song that she played that he'll never forget and it was it was called free your mind and your ass will follow and when the teacher this tibetan guru said that to him that others uh, that he thought of that song so he said okay that's it free your mind and your ass will follow and that's kind of what he did he sort of said okay i'm going to go with it and you know that was you know since then he's become this buddhist teacher and writer and you know what's your relationship with nick like now you know miraculously you know i think we're as close as two people can be never mind father and son i mean we talk all the time you know he helps me through my shit i help him through his hopefully when we're together, you know, in the same city, we just have hang out. You know, we surf together. Daisy and Jasper, it's really cool. Da Daisy now is up here for a while, but Daisy and Jasper and Nick, until recently, lived together within like 10 miles of each other in LA. And Nick and Jasper still do. And they just hang out. They go surfing again. They go to the movies. They go for walks. They hang out. They have dinner at each other's houses. And, you know, and that goes to this whole thing about, you know, about what sobriety is. It's not, this is a kind of a cool story that actually Nick, told me about and it comes from his doctor the same doctor who diagnoses bipolar disorder and she works with addiction that's her specialty she's an addiction specialist and she said that if you're an addiction doctor it's really hard because it's a hard disease but she said that you know she has a lot of friends from medical school who are di doctors different kinds of doctors and she said that if you're a successful doctor that treats people with cancer or heart disease you treat them and they go back where they were in other words they're healthy and she said that's amazing she said but when you work with people who 
are addicted, you don't bring them back to where they were. You bring them to someplace completely new and beyond that anything that they ever could have imagined for themselves and their families could have imagined for them and for their families and all that. And so the idea, I guess the point is that um, I think the relationship that I have with Nick is beyond anything. You know, you would never want to go through that shit, that hell, as you know. But having gone through it, you know, you really open up your heart and soul. You get rid of a lot of the bullshit. You realize what's important, what isn't important. And if you survive it, and if you can sort of heal, it just takes you to places that you probably never would have gotten to. And so that is sort of the blessing under in the skies or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah, my mom and I um, have an amazing relationship, although there's huge scars from it. I mean, I don't know if our relationship will ever be fully healed. Maybe. So yeah, that's the reason but, why. But that's, maybe that's okay. Yeah, it is okay. It's just, I, I, you know, it's tough to have blown up the, the family, you know, like my mom really. Do got, you mean that the scars are there? Cause do you feel guilty about it? Or do you feel there's resentments still? Yeah. I mean, I feel like both of those, my mom looks at me and still sees part of who I was back then, you know, or like the other day she asked like, well, what's new in your life? I said, wow, you know, I just applied for a $10,000 loan to get a new website. She said, why would anyone lend you money? And I just thought, mom, cause I have a like successful thing going that a lot of people listen to. And because it's a web-based company and it needs a great website. And there's like things like that where she's still, I don't know what it is. She's still, well, you know what it there's is. There's trauma. I think you know what it is for sure. It's exactly what it's yeah. fear. It's fear. It's trauma. Yeah. Yeah. It's fear. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's easier for you to hear that, but understanding that you realize it's not about you. It's about, it's about fear. It's not even about what happened. It's about what you did. It's about the fear and all that pain. It's just the way it is. But anybody who's been through it, maybe in some ways are more vulnerable because it's like there's this like open wound and you every time you touch it, the wound you know doesn't heal and it opens up more and there's pain there. But on the other hand, there's a different kind of understanding, I think. People who have not experienced addiction or mental illness are a lot less likely to come through the other side and understand, you know, without that kind of judgment. But you're right, there's scars. And, and I think healing can take a long time and yeah. maybe some stuff doesn't heal. But the other thing is, you know, eight years, you know, imagine another... Two years, three years, five years, ten years—you just don't know. Yeah, uh, people trust comes back, healing happens. There's a lot of, you know, underneath all that fear is is what what's it all come down to? It's a it's it's love, and the reason that we do feel afraid is because we are afraid because you know she came so close to losing you, just like you know I did with Nick. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean it's supposed to make it easier for you to have that reaction because you know it's like, hey, I'm doing all this amazing stuff. I'm sober for eight years. You know, I need your support. I don't need, you know, that doubt or that criticism. So both of those are really valid. Yeah, it's tough. I think it's one of the things I just wanted to mention on this episode because um, like a lot of people, it's almost like when you get in a fight with your spouse and you've learned your lesson and then you want to be forgiven. Yes, exactly. You know, but hey, that, I've learned my lesson. Come on. What? Yeah, but that's not the way it works is, yeah. you know, you're you're in the, the doghouse, quote unquote, until you're out of yeah. the dog. Well, that's the con I mean, that's the thing about life in general and addiction maybe in particular is that fair or not, there are consequences. Yeah. And one of the consequences, the thing that is probably one of the, you know, again, it's, I, I know it from San Quentin, but I know it from other people, you know, there are people who's, who are in prison, whose kids are in jail, 
for things that they did that they never, ever would have done, ever, when they were 19 years old because they were addicted to meth or, or heroin or fentanyl, whatever it is, and they're in jail for decades, maybe even the rest of their life. You know, it's, is it fair? Of course, it's not fair. Is it heartbreaking? Of course, it's heartbreaking, but it's just the reality. And it's something that I can't get my mind around, you know, to have to live with that, that I did something when I was 19 years old that has, you know, the consequences are ones that I, I mean, that's, I guess, how you probably feel, Nick feels that, how lucky. The cons, there were consequences, but the consequences, I mean, you have a, it sounds like a pretty amazing life and the potential for, you know, more and more and more. And that's the way I think Nick looks at it too. Um, but we all know people that don't have those. I mean, first of all, of course, the people who didn't make it, uh, and then the people whose who did, you know, whose who is the consequences are ones that they will. Uh, it's just determined their life forever. Yeah, it's a hard one to even think about. It's just so sad to me. It is. It's really sad. The next question is: How do we talk to our kids if addiction runs in their family? Well, they got to know. I think, you know, that they're more vulnerable, that addiction is, um, people, anybody can become addicted, but people who have addiction in their family are more vulnerable to addiction. And so they need to know about that. And it's not just one conversation. It's a reminder. And it's a reminder both about, um, with the hope that, you know, somebody's going to you know, be wise and say, oh God, I'm more likely to become addicted. So I'm never going to do drugs. I'll may help, may happen. But the other thing is, you know, maybe if somebody understands that they're more vulnerable so that they can start to pay attention. Maybe if they do respond differently to drugs than their friends, maybe they'll at least be a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of some awareness that if things start to escalate, maybe I am one of those guys. Maybe I have that and maybe I should talk to somebody about it. How do you find hope after watching your son relapse so many times? I think that humans... Maybe one of it's our maybe it's one of our best qualities, and maybe one of it's our it's our most um, our biggest greatest weaknesses. But hope springs eternal. There, I'm gonna you know, I'm talking. I'm just right in the middle of writing about this guy on death row, so maybe it's that's why it's all fresh. But there was this time where this guy had a chance of getting out. You know, he he was he's on death row. He didn't commit this crime. He should be out. But the you know the, the system is stacked against him. You know, poor kid without money, never had defense. He was, you know, he's in prison. If he had rich, he was rich. If he had fancy lawyers, he never would be in death row, never been even in prison right now. But uh, he had a chance of getting exonerated in a, in a hearing. And because he's a Buddhist, his teachers were trying to help him meditate in order to, you know, stay in the middle, not to get too caught up on things you can't control, which is what was going to happen, the outcome, the positive or negative outcome of this hearing. And so there was this mantra, you know, hope is poison. If you hope, if you hope, if you hope, and you're disappointed, you, but you'll crash. You know, it's this roller coaster. It's really... So he was really wrestling with that, trying not to be too hopeful for the outcome that he wanted. But he was really struggling with that. And sometimes his mind would spin out and he was imagining, you know, walking out those gates and what his life was going to be like that. And that was terrifying, but still it was this whole, you know, new chance. But then he was feeling like, you know, he was failing as a meditator and as a Buddhist because he was going off into these, you know, projections, these stories, telling himself and hoping. And then one of his Buddhist teachers said to him, yeah, hope is poison, but would you ever want to live without hope? You know, so I think it's kind of, I guess what I'm saying is that there were times when I felt hopeless, but I could, I, again, when there's no, when there's life, there's hope. As bad as things got, you know, 
my hope would be dashed over and over and over again. And Nick's too. I mean, I think you probably know this. At a certain point, Nick did not. I mean, there were many, many years where Nick did not want to be sober. At least he didn't. He wasn't aware, conscious enough of what was going on for him to have that in a clear thing. It was all about me. I was, you know, he had a right to kill himself. He would say that over and over again. You know, fuck you. If I want to kill myself, it's my right to kill myself. Or I didn't have a problem. I could stop anytime I want. Um, but there was a point where he did not want to keep relapsing. And so he would be committed. He would do what they told him. He'd go to meetings. He'd have a sponsor. He'd practice the steps. And um, he helped that. He had that same hope that I had for himself. And then it would be, he would relapse. And so his hope, you know, he disappointed himself. He disappointed me. It was a cycle over and over again. Um, but every time there was hope, you know, I, I, I guess my point is, is that, you know, it's that it's the same thing. I guess I've said it before is that when there's life, there's hope and we've got to keep hoping and there always is hope. I think you answered this. What do you wish you had done differently? Just been maybe more aware of what this was all about learn understood more about what it means to be addicted and there's two things maybe to done, do some different kinds of interventions but also just to be more compassionate so maybe rather than acting out of reaction but just to start looking for information yeah and also the compassion piece is huge because you know the difference of approaching this with anger and resentment and sort of you know judgment how could you do this to me how could you do this to yourself versus compassion to see nick in hell meaning that it was like he would he didn't want to be doing this he was he didn't want to do it to me he didn't want to do it to his mom his little brother and sister his stepmom he didn't want to do it to himself but he couldn't help it mm. he just couldn't help it at that point and so then it was like it just made me it just broke my heart but then instead of having that anger it was like we are in this together and we're going to try to figure out what to do whatever that means who knows it's complicated but that I would have, I think, um, would have saved a lot of pain. I don't know if it would have saved time over in terms of years, but it would have saved a lot of pain. This is one that I'm really glad um, she's asking. What are some ways that teachers can be part of this support system? You know, whether it's fair to them or not, they are right in the middle of it. A lot of kids just don't have families that can take care of them in the ways that they need. Um, a lot of times it's not, uh, you know, families are just in no shape to do that. And sometimes parent, parent, parents are, you know, too involved in their own lives. They're too So fair or not, most consistent adult force in a child's life can be a teacher every day, you know, seven hours, eight hours, six hours, whatever it is, every single day. And so I think that we can support teachers by recognizing the fact that they're in this position to sometimes see more about what a child's going through than anybody else, even their parents, because their parents are blind for whatever reasons. And so I think teachers, maybe if they're trained to know what to look for, empowered so that they have options to do something if they worry about a kid, are part of conversations as they go forward with families, not just with the students, you know, not just with the kid. I think, again, it's, it's, it's almost unfair. You know, it's teachers are, you know, we expect a lot of them and it's not fair because they're just people, you know, but rightly or wrongly, they're in a position that in some cases, they're the only ones that can identify a kid who needs help. This one's tough because there obviously isn't going to be a cute soundbite answer. We often find a fine line between helping and offering compassion versus enabling. My son has been on and off the streets and on and off substances for years. He's also profoundly mentally ill. Multiple hospital stays throughout his teens. The question is, is there any way for us parents and caregivers to know when we're being helpful and when we're enabling? No, there isn't, but you can get better. 
you learn over time. You try not to make the same mistakes you've made over and over again. Uh, just make new ones and realize that, you know, there's only so much you can do and the best you can do. And that sometimes you're going to make mistakes and sometimes you're not. And acknowledge the fact that you are in a situation that is really, really hellish and have support so you can help maybe make some of these decisions. What is enabling? What is making it worse? What actually might be useful to do? What might help? Another thing that I think is a cultural, you know, phenomenon that is really kind of disgusting is that we are made to feel that as parents, that we're not only supposed to be, you know, addressing to our children's, um, you know, making sure they have whatever, clean clothes and food and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But we also have to be sort of their therapists and their teachers and their, uh, we have to know when they need help. We have to be their doctors or physicians. I mean, we have to do all this stuff and we can't, you know, we just don't know. We're just people and we're just trying to do the best we can. And so that's why we need a lot of support. So the idea of trying to answer some of these questions that we put on ourselves and that our society puts on us as parents, it's just too much. It's too much of a burden. How do you know? Nobody knows. And so we just need to try to figure it out and have support and help as much as we can. And also to learn that, you know, that we have to take care of ourselves through the whole process, because if we don't, First of all, we can't help anybody else. And second of all, you know, we can die. We can, you know, I had a, in the middle of this whole thing, I had a, a, a brain hemorrhage. I had a cerebral hemorrhage at, in, um, at some of the worst time when Nick was out. And uh, I ended up in the hospital. I was here. Karen called 911. You know, I was in the ambulance. I ended up in the emergency room. They figured out that I had this, it's called subarachnoid hemorrhage. They had to take a, for some reason in this modern world we live in, they still had to take an old fashioned uh, drill that like a manual hand drill, whatever you call it, and drill a hole in my head to relieve the pressure. Uh, and at that point, I heard all the doctors talking about the fact that it was a miracle that I'd survived until then. It was, um, I guess, 10% of the people that have the kind of hemorrhage that I had survived. So I was really lucky. I was aware of that. But then the other thing is when I started to get a little bit more conscious and able to have conversations, I asked one of the doctors, um, I said, you know, it felt like my brain exploded. And I've just been in there so much stress. I felt like my brain has been going to explode for all these years, you know, because of my son. I just have been so, so freaked out this whole time. Could that have caused this brain hemorrhage? And the doctor said, well, it sure did help. <laughs> so maybe, you know, I mean, basically, you know, we have to take care of ourselves too. And that's sometimes it's really hard to do. And it's, um, and whatever that means, you know, carving time, having relationships, going to Al-Anon, going to therapy, you know, doing whatever gives us joy in the middle of that hell, you know, trying to get some respite, some relief. Mm. Well, I'd like to end the program this way. You've been very generous with your time. But if I could hand you a phone right now, and on the other end of the phone was you at your most hopeless or clueless or naive or whatever you deem is the most important time you could use a message, I want you to right now speak into the microphone as if you're speaking into the phone and, and tell that younger David, what you think would help him throughout the years until he becomes who you've become today? I guess, God, hold on. You know, what we were just talking about, when there's life, there's hope. Uh, and so hold on and, uh, you know, and do the work and it can get better. I, this was a weird thing that maybe is a different version of the same answer, but I was freaked out one night. I went to San Francisco to try to find Nick. I knew he was somewhere around the hate. Couldn't find him, of course. Drove around, met this girl. I ended up writing about this girl who was also addicted to meth. And we went to McDonald's. I bought her a hamburger and we talked. And 
And she told me about her family and, you know, they didn't know where she was. And I said, you know, in a very gentle way, you know, have you ever thinking about giving them a call? They're probably worried about you. And anyway, it was this really intense thing. So I went and said goodbye. And it was sad because I, you know, I felt like I was her dad as, as well as Nick's dad. And then I went to, uh, I just <clears throat> took a walk and I was feeling, you know, hopeless. You know, that this was hopeless. I'd never find Nick again. This girl was going to die, her parent, you know, all of that. And there was this homeless guy in a um, alleyway, and I was walking by, and I kind of looked over at him. He lifted his head up, and he said, hey, don't worry. The sun's going to rise in the morning. <laughs> and I just had to start laughing. It's like, here's this guy that, you know, from the appearance of the outside, it seemed like I was the one who had it probably a little bit more together than this guy. It's like, no, no, no. He, he had the answer. I don't know. So that's, I guess it's just about hanging on. Thank you for your time. <laughs> I will say thank you. It's amazing to talk to you. Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at hellohumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is hellohumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art in the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description. And it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings and also of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution. So our patrons are our financial backbone of this product. That's how we manage to do this ad-free. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash howtohuman. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash howtohuman. This is the How to Human podcast, a production of hellohumans.co. Until next time. Have a great day.